Hey everyone at ASAP Now, thank you again for joining us. For those of you who are new to us, I'm Amy Ho, ER doctor and also the ASAP Now Nowcast host. So May is a special month. Um, we normally have a couple pieces of content every podcast episode, but in light of our special guest and also May being a couple important awareness months, we actually condensed it down to one guest. So we have a very well-known name to you all, Dr. Christopher King, ASEP's president, joining us to talk about a couple pieces of importance. Item one is that May is Mental Health Awareness Month. Now, Dr. King actually talked about mental health and how it was a priority with Dr. Dark back in the winter. So we wanted to bring him back to see where things are going with mental health and the college's priorities since then. We also wanted to bring him on because for those of you who don't know, Dr. King is also the first Asian American ASEP president. Now, with it being Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, we of course had to ask him what his thoughts were there. So thanks again for joining us and we'll jump right in with Dr. King. Hey everyone at ASEP Now. So I have an extremely well-known Uh, guest with us today and someone that we're really excited to be able to spend some time with and that is Dr. Christopher King who is of course um, the ASA president. We wanted to bring him on for a couple reasons Um, and they're actually both centralized around May being a special month. So first of all May is Mental Health Awareness Month and Dr. King actually spoke to Dr. Dark back in December about mental health. And we wanted to bring back that conversation. And then secondarily, um, May is also Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. So Dr. King, as many of you probably know, is the first Asian American ASAP president. So we wanted to hear some of its thoughts there. So Dr. King, with that, I want to say again, thank you so much for giving us the time. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity to, to, uh, to have this discussion with you. And I really look forward to what uh, information and perspectives that we can share with everybody listening. Absolutely. So we will jump right in. So mental health is a topic I really want to make sure we cover. When you talked with Dr. Dark last winter, you talked about how mental health would be a priority, kind of twofold, one for our patients, and then also for like just emergency medicine doctors like ourselves, our own wellness. Um, Kind of starting with mental health patients, where do you think we are in terms of interventions for ASAP? Like what have we been able to do in the, you know, in the few months uh, coming up to now? Well, thank you so much for bringing this topic up for discussion. And part of it is just to provide those listening a little bit of perspective. When I had the privilege of being elected president-elect, one of my visions that I shared with the then president at that time uh, was how and where can certain initiatives by the president and the college get done within a year. And certain big topics in the past require a lot of effort and time. And sometimes they don't always come to fruition. And then another president comes and they have a different priority. So I was privileged to say that, hey, mental health is the one that I want to focus on because there are there was such a big need to address it. And I believe that it's gonna have long lasting consequences that I want to have people start talking about it earlier. And the staff were very willing to do that. And that's why I, throughout my president-elect year, mental health was one of the issues that I kept bringing up to say, this was gonna be one of my priorities. During that year as president-elect, the ASAP staff and a lot of chapter members and committee leaders listened and they were aware of it. And because they also perceived that it was an issue, 
they start to identify information and opportunities and start to forward it, collate it, and identify where we can make those connections or start to work on things. And then after my discussion with Dr. Dark, obviously as president, this continues to be one of the priorities that I believe is important for the college. And as every, everywhere I've been having the good fortune to travel, mental health is one of the top two or three issues that comes up. And it comes in several different forms because it is such a broad issue. One of them is how can we better care for the patients themselves? It is often a source of frustration that you have someone, I've seen some people say, well, I do my medical screening and I'm done. That's true and that's your responsibility to a certain extent, but there are times and places where we can actually make a connection, where we can actually do a little bit more. We can resume the treatment or even start treatment for certain conditions that we feel more comfortable with. Two, this overlaps with several other topics that we have importance and that is substance use. And they're not the same, but they do have some overlap. Society and where we are right now in the post-COVID-19 pandemic phase here and how people are feeling after years of isolation, distancing, and going through an experience that is only once in a generation and how do we come to grips with it, whether it's in the workplace, our family, our social relationships, and how we are as a community. And the third thing is knowing those factors there and the burden that they're creating then touches upon boarding, which is another issue, as well as how do we personally deal with it professionally and socially and how and where can we find the assistance to make sure that our mental health, when we are dealing with boarding, with patients that sometimes we feel we don't have the resources to do or that we have the responsibility but no one else is willing to help us with. And so over the past six months, staff, as well as a lot of chapters have actually made progress on those things identified the year before. And we're starting to see some state legislation, some rules and regulations and some practices. This last part that I wanna talk about for this answer is moving the pieces in place. It would be very easy to say, here's one piece of legislation I'd like to get done, or here's one topic I wanna to see us addressed. But for me, it was more important, and that is a sustained effort to make sure that even when my term comes to an end, that we can still make progress on the pieces that are there at the very foundation. And so we are now forming those relationships and connections with other professions and other specialties. We are now identifying state practices and legislation that can be successful and replicated in other states. We are starting to gain the ear of our federal legislatures, which hopefully we will continue to have a discourse with uh, at LAC just this coming weekend. And then the last part is some of our education curriculum that we're putting in place. So even though it's behind the scenes, I believe that we have laid a good foundation. And now part of it is going to be is making sure that we can build upon it and sustain a momentum that has just been begun. So that's an incredibly thorough answer. And I think gives us a lot of insight into things that are going on at ASAP that may or may not have um, hit the common public just because it's still, you know, in development. And I'm in particular, very sympathetic to, you know, the idea that it is a one-year term and there's only so much you can accomplish in a year. Like, as we all know, these are not easy issues, right? Like they've been going on for decades and decades and decades. Um, but but I, I did want to hear, what do you think is achievable in say the next half year or in the short term? Like, like I've already noticed, um, and I do think this is, you know, part of ASAP and also just part of what is emergency medicine as well, but in particular, like substance abuse care has gone um, eons forward. Like I think buprenorphine is very common practice, especially initiation in the emergency department. I think ER doctors were getting X waivered heavily and now there is no X waiver, which is even better. Um, you know, I think we very much understand liberal prescribing of Narcan and also do a lot to get it to patients. Like I think the movement there has been 
drastically fast, um, which is great. But I would I would love to hear your thoughts on this whole mental health for patients topic and in terms of what do you think we'll uh, we'll get to? Well, thank you. Uh, part of those who have heard me speak before know that I was a history major and I always like to utilize what was successful or not successful in the past to help guide the future. And exactly that you identify substance use, I think provides a very good template and analogy of what we can do next. If you look back a decade ago, or even longer than that, how many times and places did we hear our colleagues talk about the opioid epidemic and the pain of substance use and, and what patients have damaged going on? Why weren't we doing more? Why were these patients stigmatized? Why are we just putting them out in the street? And it took years of advocacy and persistence and dedication, and it took innovation for people at local programs to make progress. But once those pieces were in place and once that sufficient momentum was gained, all of a sudden there was a better understanding and acceptance and recognition of it. And then requiring additional years of advocacy to the point where, again, the X waiver now is being eliminated. Now we know that there's widespread treatment. Now that there are other opportunities, right? There are treatment centers. Some patients may or may not need to come. We have over-the-counter naloxone. There's additional projects that people are using to sustain the work that has been done, such as the naloxone project. So I look at mental health as utilizing that same thing. We have talked about it for years. We have always just said, oh, you know, that patient there, I did my screening, I handed it off to somebody else or you know, I don't really understand. I don't feel comfortable treating them. But now we can identify we can do a little bit more. And part of it's our responsibility to say, just like we did with substance use, this is a subject and topic and population that we can help. Where and when do we start to work on it? And from there, just like bridge therapy, a lot of mental health patients may not necessarily need to be hospitalized, but we don't have an appropriate place to go. Well, we need the resources and the partners. And they do even need to come to the emergency department. Can they then, after resuming medications, then have a place where they can follow up for the next day or two to make sure that those medications are, reach a sufficient level of therapeutic effect. How and where do we find that we can avoid these repeat visits, not because they don't have anywhere else to go, but because now we have better inpatient and outpatient care and continuity of care, medications that are more available, accessible. And then where does it represent an opportunity for emergency medicine to say we can help this patient population? And it doesn't always have to be in the ED. How can we use telehealth and our consultants to do it? And over the past six months, we've identified partners such as the American Association of Emergency Psychiatrists who want to work with us on saying, how can we provide better information so that you can understand, triage, risk stratify, start treatment and disposition of these patients better, and how can we help you? And once you find you're not alone, once you find people are understanding of this and are willing to help, that's just like with substance use that I hope we can get to that point of momentum sometime in the next couple of years where we will see a huge wave of progress. Yeah, and that's actually all extraordinarily positive to hear, I think, because um, when it comes to a lot of things you just named, like a lot of our frustrations that uh, surround, you know, boarding, that surround the fact that we have patients that we can't place, like all this sort of stuff, this actually wraps into um, kind of the second part of mental health, which is the mental health of the workforce, because there's obviously like just straight up burnout from working a little bit too much or a lot too much. Um, there's definitely just straight up burnout from, you know, pay decreases, um, groups changing over, you know, terrible staffing, like those sort of things. But I think one of the greatest places that we have um, burnout, like affecting the mental health of ER doctors is actually this feeling of helplessness that we have a problem, which is often process oriented. And that problem is well out of our hands. So we're kind of stuck 
patching things. Um, so I, I guess that's kind of my pivot to say, like, how do you feel like this all evolves into the mental health of ER doctors and of the workforce? Well, thank you. Burnout has, has evolved over time and everybody has a slightly different definition. And there's been recent surveys that unfortunately seem to identify that emergency medicine physicians are the number one specialty and profession affected by burnout, that we are the most burnout. Some people and surveys will put us in the mid sixties and that's distressing for several reasons. One is the sense of uh, what is our purpose and what is our profession and what do we do best? And I wanna thank all of the listeners by being an emergency physicians and leaders of your team throughout COVID, we were one of the few, despite all of the circumstances to still be there for the patients and the communities day in, day out, under personal, individual, as well as collective risk, everybody was there. Then it went on for another several years, and there's a toll that takes place. And then when it comes to burnout, administrative requirements, metrics, feeling a sense of self-worth, getting respect from others. Even, uh, I don't know if how many people will still recall those text messages that were posted from surgeons or primary care doctors. <laughs> you know, what you're doing is incredible, and, and when this is all over, I will never give you grief again on a consult or why you want to admit a patient. And where has that goodwill gone? Well, memories are short and that's understandable. Well, what it comes down to is boarding now and the nursing shortage is actually impacting our identity and how we can do our job, right? We're there for anybody and everybody all the time that we can identify, evaluate and disposition patients rapidly. Now we can't even see them rapidly. They have to wait in the waiting room. We're shifting how we practice medicine by doing waiting room medicine. We can't even disposition them properly. Uh, as I travel, I hear stories of mental health boarding to tie in the other topic that you mentioned. Uh, you know, in one state, I heard about a patient boarding in an ED for six months. And then a month later, I heard that there was another one staying there for seven or eight months. And then most recently, I heard one that's well over a year. When you go to multiple states and you're hearing that these things are not uncommon, and we know that the length of stay and the numbers are getting worse and worse, uh, I hesitate to use the word, but after a while I came to grips with it. This is an issue of moral injury for us. We can't do what we take pride in what we're supposed to do. And when no one else helps us, what does that do for our identity and what we can believe in what we want to do? And that certainly contributes to our burnout and that affects us. And that's what I also wanna make sure that we, how we have the resources, the willingness to acknowledge what is affecting us and how we can make progress to help each other is just as important as how we help patients. I think that's really important. Um, and I, I think that touches on a lot of the process things um, that, you know, just improving processes and improving the practice of emergency medicine will already touch um, the mental health of emergency doctors. And what I really love in this whole conversation is that you, you did not recommend, you know, more yoga and <laughs> and meditation, which which we all know is kind of like the joke of this of this wellness discussion. Um, I, I I would love to hear also how do you feel that ER violence has folded in here? So I know ASAP's had a lot of advocacy efforts um, here that I think are worth highlighting. No, thank you, uh, Dr. Terry, President Elect. Last year, represented ASAP and the board and a. Uh, joint initiative with the Emergency Nurses Association at Capitol Hill on legislation against ED violence. And we're going to have another initiative actually this coming week where we're going to redouble our efforts here to raise the visibility of this, including a piece of legislation that will better afford protections for emergency department staff. I think part of it is understanding the root cause of the violence. Part of it is understanding what exists and what we need. 
So first and foremost, what's the root cause? Well, uh, I'm not a sociologist uh, or epidemiologist, but I would say we know that society right now is not in a good state. And for whatever reason, civility, uh, certain social norms that used to be accepted, you as a physician having a certain amount of respect from anybody because of what you did and how you earned it has been lost. Then we add on the boarding and patients waiting in the waiting room for a long time or not even being able to uh, unload it from their EMS uh, and then getting treatments that they may or may not be satisfied because we have limitations or seeing their patients sitting in a hallway gurney for two, three days at a stretch or even months for mental health. Somewhere along the way, that sense of frustration, I think any of us would also empathize with that, but there's a difference between being frustrated and, and articulating it to then transitioning to actual verbal threats, credible threats, and actual physical violence. And I don't want it to be lost that it was years ago that we lost Dr. O'Neill, and that now we've had several other instances of our physician colleagues, but also our nurses who have been deliberately hit, struck, threatened, and, and even killed. And, and how and where as a society we allow it? Well, what happens outside the hospital but one thing, but the hospitals used to be a sanctuary where anybody and everybody could be presented. And there was a certain amount of calm and respect and certain things just didn't happen. So where do we go next? Well, we know that one, a lot of our colleagues don't feel safe. Two, this gets underreported and no one really wants to see it. Hospital administrators obviously are a little reluctant to have this all documented and what they need to do or they're liable for. We know patients sometimes regret it, but they also too uh, have their sources of frustration. And somewhere along the way, there has been a culture where, hey, you work in the emergency department, it's part of what you endure. And I think we need to be very cautious about continuing that uh, narrative. We know that security measures in emergency departments there. And then what happens when and where something actually does occur is reported, there's very little enforcement. So I'm hoping that state legislation, we've learned in several states now where they will require security forces there to have skills in de-escalation, restraints, and personal security, and then we can see federal legislation to hold both hospitals, facilities, governments, uh, as well as people who actually do articulate or commit those acts of violence accountable. And, and you know, I think um, it seems like this is a place where there actually is a lot of legislation geared towards addressing this issue, which is unusual, actually, I feel like, like a lot of times you know, you hope there's a bill, but in this case, I think there's actually distinct advocacy efforts. Is the answer for our membership then to really engage, like to get involved the advocacy, to share your stories with ASAP, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, well, with admitted conflict of interest, that that is one of the reasons why I involved with ASAP in the first place was understanding that if you're not happy with something, you can continue to complain about it, or you can say, what can I do? It's my fair share. So just those listening, I, I believe that advocacy is incredibly important. But what do I mean by advocacy? I would just like to see more emergency physicians more engaged at any level, whether it's in your institution, in your ED, if it's your hospital and certain committees, whether it is with certain other agencies, subspecialties, our partners, whether it's at the hospital level, and if you so desire at the state or national level, speaking up and identifying what is not appropriate, what's not fair, or if something is there, what is not being enforced and why, and trying to do the right thing the right way. Uh, if we got more people involved at any level, I, I think we would find that we would have greater successes on issues that continue to unfortunately affect us, but also improve our working conditions uh, and our satisfaction overall in our profession. 
but has to start with us speaking up and saying either this is not right, this is right, and this is why we should continue it, or how can we work together with others to make things better? Yeah, and I, I love the working with others piece because it's not just an ED issue. Like this is definitely a whole healthcare issue. So it's awesome to hear about a lot of the partnerships that are happening again behind the scenes. Um, so that's a coordinated effort rather than this fragmented specialty-based one where when it's a universal issue. Um, I, I think one of the last things I wanted to ask you about on this mental health topic is um, thoughts on addiction for ER doctors. And the only reason I bring this up, not because it's necessarily an advocacy um, effort in particular, but because, you know, as a percentage, ER doctors actually have a higher rate of substance abuse, um, given our numbers, but we actually have one of the highest rates of return to work when, um, when we are treated, which is interesting to me, because I think that speaks to the resiliency of the field, but I'm not super knowledgeable about advocacy in terms of, uh, of this sort of wellness um, discussion with ER doctors. Uh, I'm going to see if I can combine a couple of the threads that you brought together, and I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss this a little further. So it is a little concerning to hear that all of us as emergency physicians have this higher rate of potential substance and part of it, again, is why? Is it because that's who we are DNA-wise? No. I think it's part of it because of the work stresses. Part of it could be the work schedule. We know shift work takes a toll over time. Uh, we know that sometimes we batch shifts. And then also what you have to endure. And it was one thing to endure certain working conditions, and depending on your work environment with patients, loads, high acuity, seeing some of the best and worst of society in general. But then when you are now being personally attacked and assaulted, when you don't feel safe, when some things that you believe are truly important for your patients either just aren't available or no one else seems to want to help you, how do we cope with it? And sometimes it could be counseling. Sometimes it could be additional personal wellness addition. Sometimes it is the burden that our family and friends um, have to help us with. But sometimes it does turn to substance use. But as you noted, those who do participate in it have a higher rate, because I think that also speaks to the character and the people who go into this profession, that they are active, that they are willing to listen, that they are working toward a goal, and that is how they can do self-improvement. And once they know that they don't necessarily have the stigma, that there is a resource out there or resources, and that they can actually do that. And then how can we help them sustain that, not only continued therapy, but also, again, improving the workplace, improving our profession in general. And this happened to be a piece of uh, common um, interest to both me as well as Dr. John Jones of AAEM about physician health programs and how we can identify and further improve the programs that do exist, appreciating what they offered when they were first started, but somewhere along the way, do they have the resources and the tone and the appropriate way of helping all of us who have the desire and the need for the help? Yeah, and I think also one of the, the pieces that I love about this, and another reason I was thinking about it, is because of how successful ER has been in treating um, addiction with patients. I think I think that we are an inherently very open-minded group, actually, um, just by nature that we see all comers of patients. So I think that that open-mindedness has actually really helped us um, in terms of you know our own resilience, if there's addiction issues, et cetera. I think we're very open to talking about you know things are tough that you know therapy is helpful, like et cetera, et cetera. Like we had a we had a great um, talk uh, earlier on a, on ASAP now actually with a with a member talking about his his own personal journey, um, you know, dealing with depression and suicide, which is a incredibly vulnerable topic. 
but one that I think rung home with a lot of people and one that ER doctors I think are, are really open to talking about, um, which I think speaks to the DNA of us as a, as a specialty. Um, but, but with that, I wanted to, you know, kind of wrap up this um, mental health conversation, but absolutely give you the last, last words on if there's anything else you'd like to add about this Mental Health Awareness Month from your perspective as ASAP president. Well, thank you. And to those listening, May is Mental Health Month, but that doesn't mean that it's not important year-round, but it does offer the opportunity to remind people periodically of what is going on, what can be done, or what is being done, and where we can go from there. And to know that a lot of the emergency medicine organizations have recognized this, and as I have the privilege of hearing from members from across the country, that this is an important issue. Most of the time it is for the patients and how we can do better for them, whether it's boarding, treatment, adolescence, access to care, to disposition, to ourselves, and how, where we can provide the resources to acknowledge that what you have to endure and the success that you could have when you have those resources there is incredibly important. And so I would just ask you to continue to learn more, to understand it, to understand what your patients go through, to understand what your colleagues may endure and how and where we can help each other because in this day and age, when everybody has a lot of their own individual goals and problems, somewhere along the way, it is comforting to know that someone else, and oftentimes it can be a peer, cares. And it starts with people. So thank you. Thank you. Now, kind of last question for you on this May episode of the ASAP Now Nowcast uh, podcast is, uh, like I alluded to, May is also Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And as the first Asian American ASAP president, I want to just hear your thoughts on how does that feel? Was there significance of it to you? Like, what are just your, you know, open-ended thoughts on that? Uh, first and foremost, I am truly humbled. Uh, I am not sure that I am the best representative of that, but uh, the opportunity uh, is on my shoulders. And I'm still not sure I understand the magnitude of it. But what I will say is I believe that somewhere along the way, because of the opportunities I've had to help get involved with ASEP, whether it was with committees, the chapter, or nationally, and now as president, uh, I was one of the people who was worthy enough of the trust of members to have those responsibilities, to have those positions along the way. And there's no way that I could do that and be that, represent that without part of it is who I am, how I grew up, how I was raised, the values I have, somewhere along the way, the cultural influences. And so all of that is inherent into a combined with all of my experiences into who I am. And so again, I'm incredibly humbled by this opportunity. And somewhere along the way, it was because of my race, ethnicity, and how I was brought up. I appreciate those thoughts. And I want to say more than anything, I appreciate you for taking the time, again, to be our um, our May episode of ASAP Now Nowcast. I, I, am, I have to say, I'm just like struck by your humility, honesty, and care and all of the answers. And I want to say thank you so much for everything you've done um, for the college. So that is it this month for our May Nowcast. Now again, May is Mental Health Awareness Month as well as Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Um, we have a couple features in the magazine actually on mental health. There's a feature on the mental health crisis in the ED, as well as a pretty interesting one about how the data points to sleep deprivation in the ED, something we possibly all know a little something about. Now, thanks again for joining us. Always let us know if you have any thoughts, comments, or feedback. You can tweet us if you have an idea at ASAP now, or feel free to tweet me direct at Amy Faith Ho. 
We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback and produce a podcast that keeps you tuning in. So thanks again, you guys, and see you all next time.